Okay, um, one more detail then. In in um uh the his Hollywood movie. Oh my god, what's it called? Once upon a time in Hollywood. Once upon a time. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Alon, and welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. And this is David, and today I finally watched Kill Bill Volume One. So it's no secret, David, that I think we are pretty big uh, Quentin Tarantino fans. I'd say so. Um, I, I think on a, a previous episode, we've even discussed Tarantino and his films in like a a rankings sort of league of their own, right? Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll just kind of jump off, uh, jump this review off with compared to because you've seen most of Tarantino's films I've seen most of Tarantino films I compared to his collection where would you say Kill Bill volume one lands um it's it's kind of hard right I think my the way I look at Tarantino is probably different than most people too because I think his later stuff um Inglorious Bastards Django Unchained, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those are probably my top three, which is not going to be the top three of, of most Tarantino fans and most people that really love movies. And, you know, I love Pulp Fiction. Um, I loved Reservoir Dogs. Um, and and this was, this was really amazing, too. You know, when it came out, I don't think I was as big into... I, I loved movies, but I wasn't as big into like looking into directors and knowing, you know, I knew who Tarantino was, but I wasn't like, I need to watch everything he's done. And the, I think the first thing that I saw of his was Death Proof. Yeah. Which is crazy. Um, and then I think I saw Pulp Fiction after that. And then I just started watching them, you know, when they came out and I never really made it back to this one. Um, I, I don't... I don't know why. Um, you know, I saw all the commercials for this when it came out, and I guess maybe it just at the time didn't appeal to me. Maybe the genre. I, I, I don't dislike Uma Thurman, but she's never someone who I'm like, I need to go see everything she does. Um, and actually, too, watching this, I was like, oh, I guess yeah. <laughs> when I was watching this, I was like, I thought she was still married to Ethan Hawke, and I thought she had just like given up on acting. And then I looked and like, Ethan Hawke and her divorced like in 2004 uh, right after this came out and then like she's still in stuff apparently like she she still acts like she's in the war with grandpa movie with De Niro that just either just came out or was about to so like that was also shocking to me um and I guess it's kind of if I hadn't waited this long we wouldn't get to do this episode but I, I mean I love the movie um it's to me it kind of I think it's like closer to the new age of Tarantino movies than it is the old um, for me. And this is sort of right in the middle, but I think he, you know, Pulp Fiction is amazing. It's a classic. Um, I haven't seen Jackie Brown and I haven't seen Hateful Eight. Those are the two I'm missing and I need to, I will watch very soon after this. But uh, I think like he's just from, from Kill Bill on, I think he's really, honed in his skills and just like everything is so tight everything is so perfect and by saying that it's it's kind of I'm um, like depreciating uh the ones before that and I'm not but it's just like there's so many just like I you know normally when we do this you and I don't really do any like looking up a trivia or anything but for this I did and there's just so many so many references so many callbacks so many like touches he puts into this that you're just like it like you're watching a genius at work and like this I think is like an example of just like he's like let's see how much I can fit into this movie so a couple points to touch on is uh, well first of all if you truly want to be a completionist you have to check out four rooms um, I'll watch I'll watch a fourth of it no watch the whole thing because it, it is actually I think uh I stumbled upon it accidentally on Netflix one day and I actually it's one of my favorite of his even though he had like you know a 25 percent uh, input into it the comparison that i i, I want to make with tarantino on the kind of like uh the rankings of his film the sample director that i want to uh reference has a lot less well-known films in tarantino and maybe just 
less films in, in total, but uh, it's Edgar Wright. And if you were to compare Edgar Wright to Tarantino in the same way that you would compare their films, I know we talked about Edgar Wright when we were talking about Shaun of the Dead and comparing them into a sense of Edgar Wright at like 10%, 110%, and then like maybe like a finessed Edgar Wright. Would you agree with me if we were to take Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and saying this is like Quentin's Dawn of the Dead and uh, Shaun, Hot, of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead and, and Hot Fuzz? And then if we were to take Inglorious, Django, and um, Hollywood and make it more like his, you know, Edgar's baby driver. But Kill Bill to me is like Quentin Tarantino at 110%, you know, and over maybe. This is like Edgar Wright's uh, Scott Pilgrim in my eyes. And I think the best way to compare this is to look at his past work and just note the violence, the blood, the gore, and the absolute like, uh, I don't know if you want to call it just major plot lines or similar plot lines, but everything is turned to like dial 11, you know, with this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that part of that is the fact that this is just, it's his Kung Fu movie. Um, you know, it's his homage to those type of movies, even to the, you know, even to just like having an, an anime in the middle of it it's just like he when you he loves those type of old over the top you know b-level kung fu movies and so when he's doing his version of it and you have someone who's like who directs like he does like this is what this is what happens so i think because of the genre he's working in it and how well it matches with just his own you know idiosyncrasies and the way he directs i think that's what you get in kill bill so let's i guess we we can start talking specifics about about the film um the way the film opens up i love the like the air of mystery through the whole film you don't you know bits and pieces but you don't know everything because he doesn't want you to know everything and it's funny to me because not for a second did I ever feel actually lost or at least not lost enough to be taken out of the movie. You know, so uh, I was listening to Tarantino talk one time and he was talking about how if you have the right filmmaker, even if you're not following things completely, like if you know that they're an amazing director, then you kind of just let them take you. And like, when I watch his movies, I'm just like, I know this is going to lead somewhere. I know that this is all going to wrap up nicely. And so it's like, even if there are things in the beginning, like I had some questions, you know, that I kind of wrote down as I was watching the beginning, but they're answered either immediately or towards the end or like everything is put there for a reason. Um, you know, and so this opens up with, you know, Uma Thurman on the ground and this kind of voice just talking to her, you know, asking if, if she thinks he's sadistic. Um, and then she's saying, no, this is me at my most masochistic. And then you, you know, Bill, this is your, and then she gets shot in the head. Um, and so it's like from the opening, if you, you know, if you, if you saw all the, the trailers and everything for this, you know what this is about. So I think there are very few people who went into this not knowing especially what the title is that this is like a revenge flick um but that opening does like raise all these questions of like all right how did this how did she get the you know on the ground pregnant with this guy who it's his baby apparently shooting her in the head right um and of course that gets answered throughout the movie and in a really you know unique way well what's also funny is and I love how, uh, I guess you would say that was the first official scene, but then how this movie really like jumps at you in the beginning is when Uma Thurman, um, I, I guess she's known as the bride throughout 99% of the movie, but how Uma Thurman shows up at Vivica A. Fox's house and that action scene ensues. You later find out that 
she has these five people, or I guess these four people leading up to her final, like, uh, big revenge uh, of, of Bill, of killing Bill. Right. But she has to go through these, like, four other, I guess you would call them Bill's assassination squad. That the, the Viper assassination crew or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And which she used to be a part of, um, of his crew. You understand quite quickly that there's some sort of like, she defected, they didn't like that. Therefore, you know, yada, yada, yada. But the, the way that it starts out with Vivica A. Fox's fight scene is really awesome to me because you learn she's not the first girl on uh, Uma Thurman's hit list, but the way that they set it up is they threw you into an action scene right off the bat, a really good one, by the way. And then when they were like, oh, four years earlier or something, just to set up more of the plot, uh, no way would your attention hold as well as if they just like did this movie, you know, consecutively in the in a in a straight timeline. No, right. And then there is that kind of quote that really puts it all together at the end, where it's like, "Revenge is not a straight line; it's a forest." Right. And like just the first part of "Revenge is not a straight line," so this movie's not going to be a straight line. I think is really cool. Um, but the the Vivica scene is is really interesting because. Um, like you, you get this really cool action scene and then at the end of it, you find, you see her with this list and the first name has already been marked out. Oren Ishii right. has already been marked out and she marks out Vivica Fox's name. So that's how you know that this is now playing out of order. And you may like think like, oh, well that kind of ruins the ending of the movie, but it's like, this movie is is really all about the journey, which is like you know, kind of a silly thing to say, but it's watching it. Because there's no way that you're ever going to think that Uma Thurman is not going to come out victorious like in the end of this movie. Like, you know that that's going to happen. But the way it happens is cool. And that's, you know, the way that the even like the camera shots just kind of hone in on things and, and slowly, like slowly let things build. Like, as she walks up to Vivica's door, like you see a, just a shot of her like pushing the doorbell with her finger. And then like after they start fighting, the long shot of them kind of standing there with knives, like no one wants to make a move. And then the school bus pulls up. Right. Like, and just, it's such a long lull of like no action. And then you see the school bus pull up and her daughter gets <clears> out <throat> and they like give each other these looks of like, hey, you know, not in front of my daughter, come on, come on. And then they have to stop. And like that, that scene's all cool, but I actually think the kitchen stuff is 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 the best part of that scene, just the dialogue, because yeah. Uma is so good at Quentin Tarantino dialogue in this. Um, one of my favorite lines from that scene is when Vivica Fox says, <laughs> "I should have been Black Mamba," <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, okay, yeah," um, but I think she was Copperhead. If I'm if I'm I'm right. Uh, she was Copperhead. And I think it's it's kind of fun how you get a sense of everyone's kind of attitude by the way their code names are, especially Bill, known as the Snake Charmer, I think kind of like hones in on on everyone's um, understanding of, of power positioning, I guess. But I well, love... Because in nature, the black mamba of those snakes is like the most deadly, right? And so that's just setting Uma apart. And well, another Vivica, Vivica saying like, I should have been the most deadly. Um, and like, even she talks about how uh, Uma's like, yeah, uh, Bill always said you're the best female with a knife. And she's like, bitch, you know, he didn't qualify that. Like, I'm just the best person with a knife. Yeah. Uh, another thing that sets Uma Thurman's character apart I guess we can call her Black Mamba at this point. But another thing that sets her apart is that uh, Black Mamba is actually not in the family of the Viper, the Viper family. Okay. And so um, all the other snakes are. Actually, that's not true. Also, except the California mountain snake. That's also not a, uh, a member of the 
of the Viper family. And I think those little like details in Quentin Tarantino's writing is key to understand like, yeah, you get this awesome action film, but then if you look a little deeper and you do a little bit more research, there's a lot of, you know, details and intricacies that make this film, you know, really, really great. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, go ahead. What I love too next is, you know, basically Uma's like, I'm going to kill you, but I'm not going to do it while your daughter's here. And she's like, and Vivica mentioned something about like, I know you want to get revenge. And she's like, if I wanted revenge, I'd have to kill you. I'd have to kill your daughter. I'd have to wait till your husband gets home and I'd have to kill him. And then like the whole, that would make us just about, and like she draws out a square, which is like, I, I love that dialogue. But then they plan this whole intricate knife, knife fight at night where we're yeah. all going to wear black. You're going to wear black stockings on your head. Uh, we're going to choose our knives. And I love like this whole planned out thing at like the little league field that we, we just never get to see because Vivica just has like a gun hidden in the cereal. Did you see the name of that cereal? No. What was it? Oh, you didn't. That's my, that's one of my favorite, like, um, well, I know he's famous for like making up his own brands. So I didn't know if this was like a real one or if this was one of his made up things. I think it was one of his made up things. But it's kind of like a, a foreshadowing uh, thing, which is uh, Tarantino's great at foreshadowing too. But the cereal that she pulls the gun out of uh, is called Kaboom. <laughs> That's funny. And I think I thought it was just like it had like a little like comic boom uh, insignia on it. I thought it was just like fun. Um, yeah, and that and that fight once it's once it starts for the second time ends quite quickly, kind of showing just how accurate and how powerful Uma Thurman is like compared to everyone else, you know? What also shows how horrible of a shot Vivica A. Fox is because she missed that by like two feet. Yeah, but then getting killed by a knife, which she's supposed to be like really good at, that that's like kind of a extra slap in the face, you know? Yeah, and then, you know, so before that, Uma was talking about how like, uh, Vivica says like, oh, you know, you're not as irrational as Bill said. And she's like, no, Bill said that I lack mercy, compassion, forgiveness, which you then see her kill her. And I love the, the conversation with the little girl who barely says anything. And she's like, you know, I just want to let you know your mom had it coming. But if you feel some kind of way about this, when you become an adult, I'll be waiting for you. You're just like, I'll kill you too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's good. It's, it's like, okay. And you know what? I think it also tells the audience who, who are kind of going in this, not knowing anything. It's like, okay, so Uma Thurman, you know, is the good guy. She's not going to just slaughter this little girl, but also Vivica's Fox's character must've done something real shitty to deserve this, you know? Um, and, and it keeps you wondering too. Uh, the first time I saw this, I just kept wondering, like, oh my God, what is the full story? Um, and I think the, the second part of the film, it has to be my favorite. The, the, right after the Vivica A. Fox part, there's chapter two, which is the blood spattered bride. Mm -hmm. And this is a lot of exposition. So first you find out that the church she was killed in was in El Paso. Um, one great thing I love is, so I watch most movies with subtitles on just because I feel like it's easier to follow and I'm like used to it at this point. And so all of the song titles when they started were on the screen. And this movie in particular, like the music is great, but the song titles also usually fit with what's going on. So the, this song was by Charlie Feathers and it's called That Certain Female. And it's like, as the cop is driving up to the church. Um, and then also the cop for some reason has four pairs of sunglasses on his dashboard. I love it. And then I don't know if you noticed this too, as he's driving up, there's tire marks exactly where he's supposed to drive up. No, I didn't notice. Like, which means like that couldn't have been the first take or like maybe something else was like, you know, they were doing prep for that shot. So he's just literally driving up on a line of like two tire tracks that were already there. That's pretty um, funny. And I, I love too. So when the cop gets out, he says, hello, son number one, um, which is this totally like unnecessary bit of plot. But then it actually turns out that that's his son in real life. And uh, the main cop, the, old, the father, is like actually a kind of a, a well-known 
um, actor that Quentin loves to use, but just like these little bits that he adds into it, I think are great. But then you kind of get a good sense of what went down in this church, because obviously we see in the very beginning, Uma gets shot in the church. Um, But then you, you actually get kind of the backstory of how many people were there, what happened. I also like that uh, her fake name that she used was Arlene Machiavelli, which, you know, because she sort of comes back to life, um, she was thought to be dead. Uh, so that whole scene is is great. And I'm, uh, I, I just love like the setup they give you because then that leads into the only scene I had ever, like I had seen before the movie, before I watched it in the last week, which was Uma Thurman in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I had seen L driver, um, Daryl Hannah, like walk in and almost kill her. And then the scene with the trucker, uh, you know, basically paying to rape an unconscious woman, which is like, you know, pretty fucked up. And then her biting his tongue out like that whole scene, I think is important one to kind of establish who she is, like how badass she can be, but then also just like is good backstory for setting up how she got out of this coma what's interesting too is if we were to watch this in a linear sort of way this scene obviously would have come much sooner and i'm sure you might have thought that this scene was before any of the big fight scenes with any of the other squad members right right um and and just the way that he can set up the backstory later and I, I, at least I didn't feel like I was missing anything and I didn't feel confused or anything, but he did that in, in a way that he could give us such a great um, and like attention grabbing opening at, when, when, <laughs> when Daryl Hannah is about to like inject that poison into the IV um what because she basically brought it to the you know ninth hour what did you what did you think before the phone call i thought she was gonna wake up and i actually like because i kind of thought i had remembered her like fighting off daryl hannah but obviously that's not what happened um i do also love that daryl hannah even changed she walks in in her normal clothes and then changes into a nurse's outfit and even changes into a patch with a red cross on it <laughs> it's like right. she, she like 100% needed the outfit to be perfect. Um, I, but once the phone call happens and, and Bill just kind of explains like, you know, listen, if we, if we kill her now, we're lowering ourselves to her. Like we're lowering ourselves to rats and like, we can't do that. And it's, it's one of those things where you need, if you have that scene of her almost killing her, you need an explanation for why it doesn't happen. And as far as that goes, I think it was probably pretty well done um, to get us out of like killing her right then and there. Yeah. Um, And then the male nurse, like you said, paying people to like rape unconscious women in comas in the hospital. Getting paid. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, at that point, you, you as the audience know she's awake well, because you just had that really intense crying scene from her because she realizes her baby's gone. Right. And uh, the the way that she's like so distraught realizing like, I love how she looks at her hands and automatically knows that four years have passed. Right. Yeah. And then she's distraught because her baby is gone. But at the same time, and you could hear this on the EKG monitor, how she like lays back down in bed and then slows her heart rate down to like normal, like uh, a normal rate just to play possum. I was like, just little things like that back to back is just showing you how specially trained she is. Right. I also like that the trucker was uh, one of Adam Sandler's friends, like who's in all of his movies. Did you recognize that guy? No. Yeah. He's like, he's like, uh, yeah, he's like, in all of them i like i just recognize his voice especially like his laugh from uh water boy it's also too you already think that this trucker and the male nurse are absolutely fucking disgusting and like the nurse the male nurse too is like so cavalier which is like hey i'm coming in stud i hope you're finished it's like i guess just no one in this hospital cares right but 
if you didn't already think they're absolutely fucking disgusting, when he pulls out that thing of Vaseline that's just like so gross, yeah, and like throws it to him, oh my god, like just yeah. next level, yeah, and and I just everything, um, so that that moves on from her killing both of them and then getting out of the hospital and stealing his car. And the scene that I, I really like, it's kind of like two scenes, but they connect in this way, is that when she's first pulling up to Vivica A. Fox's house in the pussy wagon, and then you realize, oh, she got it from the grimy, rapey male nurse. Well, yeah, because I love, like, as she's rolling out of the hospital, there's, like, this 70s porn music playing. And then she looks over at the truck and sees it says pussy wagon on the back and then looks at the keys and then looks back at it like that's it and then like the harsh cut of the music as she's like climbing into the the truck yeah but but also before we like move on to to chapter three um first like the tongue biting out and then like the cutting of the achilles are just two back-to-back things that are really hard for me to like watch like just hurt oh like those are obviously like horrible horrible dudes and especially the male nurse like Ashley's hitting his head and he's just like, please stop hitting me. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, that was such an interesting line delivery. I really appreciate that. Just the, like this, the sincerity, but also like, I mean, honestly, you don't care what happens to these dudes. You, you hope they die because of how like genuinely horrible they are. Um, but I think that Quentin kind of means for you to get that kind of taste in your mouth from them. And then at that point, he's like, I could have anything happen to these guys and it'd be, it'd be okay. Um, I don't, I don't quite remember. Maybe you can remind me, does chapter three start before or after she try she tries to wiggle her big toe and the whole like psychological thing that she goes from there. The chapter three is basically, it's called the origin of Oren and it's her in the truck trying to move her feet. And then it's a flashback of, explaining who Oren is, which is obviously like the first person that um, the bride goes after. Um, and this is the anime portion, mm, which was, okay, okay. when it happened, I was like, oh, you just, I'm just gonna put a fucking anime in the middle of my, my million, you know, hundred million dollar film. Um, and I'm gonna make a great anime first. Like, you know, I'm gonna <laughs> hire the best people to do it. I'm gonna make yeah. a really kind of interesting story. Um, the thing I found really interesting is actually the, you know, the art and, and how he, he uses the art and blood and stuff in the, in the cartoon to, to make it interesting. The thing that really struck me was the backstory that he gave her. Cause she's the only one that we actually had apart from the bride, apart from Uma Thurman, she's the only one that we actually know anything about because of the backstory. Right. Yeah. You don't know anything about Vivica A. Fox and you don't really know anything about anyone else besides Oren. Um, and then a little bit about the bride. So yeah, the main, yeah, Oren is kind of the main villain. She's definitely the main villain in this movie. And then she's also like almost the main character because there's just so much, so much time devoted to her. I did think, I was almost wondering if he wanted to make this so bloody, this section, because she's an assassin, um, that he felt like an anime was kind of the best way to do it. And there are other points in the movie where he had to do certain things to, to get it past censors. Um, what I did find interesting, and I guess we're at the point of, you know, so Oren Ishii is played by Lucy Liu. And originally when he was writing this, he was writing it for just a, a completely Japanese character. And he saw Lucy Liu in a movie and decided, no, Lucy Liu's got a place. You know what movie it was? What? Shanghai Noon. It was Shanghai Noon. Oh, <laughs> it just made me love him so much more. I love Shanghai Noon, but like that's you see that and you're like, she has to be in my movie now. Right. Well, also, I don't. Okay, so you know that scene in Pulp Fiction where Uma Thurman and John Travolta are at, at like the '50s diner. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember the dialogue between them before they get up and do their famous dance, but she talks about how her character in Pulp Fiction talks about how she was hired on as an actress to be in this TV show. Right. And 
as she describes the show and her role in the show, she basically describes the Viper assassination squad and then every member to a T, including her own character. Right. Well, I, I did read that part. I didn't remember it just offhand from Pulp Fiction. But uh, you know how at the end of this movie, it says, uh, you know, based on the bride character by Q and you. Yeah. That's Quentin and Uma. Because they actually came up with this whole idea while filming Pulp Fiction. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I yeah. was curious on what that was. And oh, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, like they came up with this whole idea like back then and just like, you know, finally got it made almost, you know, 10 years later. Oh, I thought it was like um, like a, a, a not very well-known short story novel <laughs> written by someone who went by the initials Q and U. Okay, well, now I know. Did you also notice, I like that, so when in the anime, her dad is murdered by this like swordsman who I guess doesn't come back up and the rest of it, um, as the swords like stabbed through her father, it's like almost like spaghetti Western music playing as it like scrolls up on the sword, like the shot of the sword going up. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, what I was going to say earlier is that you mentioned that this is Quentin Tarantino's like homage to samurai movies and, and you know, revenge ninja film. And yeah, he does like sample and take a lot of things from, from those films. But I feel like there's a ton of like noir imagery. There's a ton of Western imagery. There's a ton of just like, you know, a, a little sample from every subgenre of, I guess what you would call like an action film is sprinkled about in this. But no, by all means, you're, you're right. The, the majority of it is like a, an Asian Japanese samurai revenge story. Um, it's you know obviously but um the the details that are sprinkled throughout like you said like the music in the anime uh definitely gives this movie like extra layers and i think before we get to chapter four which is the man from okinawa it, it did raise a couple questions so after the anime ends we go back to uma in the truck Right. And she starts wiggling her toes. And then it says 13 hours later and she's able to start walking. So she's just in the, the parking garage of a hospital where she just killed two men for 13 hours in the nurse's vehicle. And like nothing came of that. Like she just made it out 13 hours later. And not only that, she then drives the pussy wagon to the airport to take it to Japan. And then is driving that truck later to go kill Vivek A. Fox. She's just riding around in the most conspicuous vehicle possible and yeah i i like it um i love her her choice of vehicles especially the uh the motorcycle with the whole like yellow jumpsuit matching helmet everything like that i think quentin took special care in like getting everyone's costume like just right well so that yellow costume is supposed to be an homage to bruce lee bruce lee yeah and he actually said if Bruce Lee was still alive, he was going to uh, put him in this movie, but he, he couldn't. But yeah, the whole, it, like, the, it, we would be on here for five hours if we tried to describe every detail of this. So it's like impossible, but it's just such an amazing. Okay, um, one more detail then. In, in um, uh, the, his Hollywood movie, oh my God, what's it called? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Once Upon a Time, thank you. One, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that explains that really long scene where he, uh, with Bruce Lee? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense to me now. I'm connecting the dots. Well, a lot of people didn't like that scene because it kind of put Bruce in a in a bad light. But I mean, I don't, it's it's all in the imagination of Brad Pitt's character. So not to get too far afield of that. Chapter four, The Man Chapter from four. Okinawa. Yes. This is kind of, it's, it's kind of a short scene i mean really when we get to chapter five chapter five is about half of the movie so right but the chapter thing four like, is also an important scene the thing actually chapter four is one of my favorite if not my favorite chapter in the film if not for anything but the first scene in chapter four in the sushi restaurant in the sushi restaurant where she comes in and just nails like an innocent american girl Yep. And 
when he asks her, like everything to that is like just picture perfect to me. And then when he asks her, you know, what business are you here for? And she drops his name, just everything gets silent and serious. And the look and expressions on both of their faces completely change. And now she speaks perfect Japanese. I was like, if I was him, I'd be shitting my pants. Right. But he's also just, you know, he's a a badass in his own right so it's like i don't think he's scared i but i do love how like she just pretends i don't know japanese and i'm just you know i've been learning and he's like oh wow you say arigato the way i say arigato like you could you could be very proficient in this and then as soon as she reveals her true intention it's just like japanese like slips right into it perfectly um i think too then the next part of it where she goes upstairs and just like, this is what I mean. Like this movie was an hour and 50 minutes. But there's like so much where she's just staring at swords for like two minutes. And I wasn't like bored by it at all. It's just like, you know, like, like simmering in the details of this is why it's so cool. And just like, she's lovingly like looking at all these blades, she's just like so amazed by his work. Um, and then she's like, oh, you know, I, I want one. Um, and he's like, well, you know, these aren't for sale. Uh, she's like, well, I don't have to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And and the way she kind of gets him to break the the oath of him never making another Hanzo sword again is that she's like, hey, look, I know you, you kind of vowed that you would never do this because you raised a student who became, I guess, evil in your eyes. But do this for me. And I'll kind of like pardon your sins by taking out the student that you're, you make this oath from in the first place. And I just kind of love that. At first, I thought they were talking about Lucy Liu's character. Um, but then, then he makes it very clear on the window. Yes, exactly. And I was like, okay, this is like, see, I, I feel like if they made that, motion towards Lucy Liu's character. It'd be like a small drop in the giant ocean of which this movie is in. But the fact that they made it Bill establishes that like this is a huge plot point for the rest of the movie. You know? Right. Well I do love too that when he writes Bill on the thing and on the window and then tells her, you know, I'm gonna mark uh, I'm gonna make you a sword. It's gonna take a month. You can sleep up here she wipes out Bill's name and then notices a little part of it. And she wipes out that too. Like, I'm going to leave nothing of you. Like, that's how angry you've, uh, you know, how you've hurt me. Um, But one cool part of that is, so, you know, when he throws the baseball at her, he's like, oh, you love swords. I love baseball. And chucks a baseball at her and she slices it in half. Yeah. So that was real. That was real? Her stunt double did that. Her name is Zoe Bell. And she's actually in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She is the stunt coordinator's wife who gets really, who really fucking hates Brad Pitt. Right. And tells him to get the fuck off the set. <laughs> That's her. And she really <laughs> chopped a baseball in half. That's awesome. Which is cool. I mean, that I don't know cool. if it's like pre-cut or whatever, but like the stunt apparently was like really done. Right. No, that's awesome. Um so I think that that kind of wraps up there because as as her month ends, there's a time jump, her Hanzo sword is made. And now she's like, all right, time to cut some mothers. And I love, I love the cuts in this because it shows a quick shot of her buying a ticket to Okinawa. And then it does this whole like little lead up backstory to Oren and like her goons and everything. And then it cuts back to Uma buying a ticket from Okinawa to Tokyo. Right. And I, I think the, the Lucy Liu speech she gives, so she's sit, sitting at a table of these, basically like the, the Japanese version of the five families that she's just taken over. And this one guy dares to call her like a Chinese American Japanese bitch. Right. And then basically like, calling her like an inbred or not, not an inbred, a, a crossbreed. Right. Basically that everyone would be rolling in their graves that put this council together. And first of all, like the way she like runs across the table is like obviously in, like an, you know it's an homage to the past movies. Um, 
Then she slices his fucking head off. But then the speech she gives is probably my favorite part of this movie. Wait, before you talk about the speech, when she cuts off his head, the amount of blood that sprays out from his neck. Well, I mean, the amount of blood in this entire movie is obviously purposely over the top. To right. where it's like, it's not even gory because it's just, it's so ridiculous. Um, but the speech she gives of, you know, if any of you ever feel that I'm making decisions that are not in your best interest, you know, please tell me and give me the opportunity to sway your decision. However, the thing we were just talking about, um, if you ever bring up my heritage in a negative way, I'll collect your fucking head. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, it's like, it's my favorite part of the movie. The way she does that, it's like, Quentin was so right to hire her just for that. That part was perfect. No, and just, um, you wouldn't feel anywhere like caring about what happens to her or, you know, how she dies or when she dies if it wasn't for all the detailed backstory that was given to you about her. And, well, and, it, and then you also, at the same time, you meet the lawyer, you meet the, um, the uh, Asian guy that they call, that says has the Kato masks. Right. And then you meet her 17-year-old bodyguard and get her backstory. Um, right. All, all very quickly just to set up this last fight. By the way, chapter five starts with 52 minutes left in the movie. Okay. And then with 43 minutes left, they're entering the restaurant for the final scene. Wow. Which is just crazy, like how much they devote very <laughs> intelligently to this last scene. And the last scene is just, just one giant fight scene that is choreographed. I, I honestly right now can't think of a more like elaborate fight scene that I've seen. Right, too. And also, um, you know how I was pointing out like the, the titles of the music, um, the title of the music when they start like entering the restaurant is Without Honor or Humanity. Oh. It's also just once again, like really fucking cool. Um, well, also when the scene starts, how she's taken the lawyer hostage from the bathroom and uh, she just fucking cuts off her arm like right then and there. Well, and the amount of blood that comes out of that too, right? Like obviously yeah, just completely fake. And then I don't know what you can say about the next fight scene, except one, it's like 24 minutes long. And two, it's freaking awesome. Yeah, just so awesome. Um, I mean, I, I will say there's, you could maybe, if you nitpicked it a little bit, be there's definitely like some henchmen waiting for their turn to get killed a little bit. But also I think- yeah how proficient she is it, it would make sense that they're hesitant to all attack at once yeah another nick nitpick is like you don't see the wires but you feel the wires yeah but that's purposeful like that is that's a stylistic thing yeah that, yeah he's absolutely doing that over the top on purpose um also we forgot to talk about the uh the guy bringing the drinks who they call charlie brown who definitely is meant to look like Charlie Brown. Oh, 100%. And I was even thinking before they called him Charlie Brown, I was like, this Charlie Brown motherfucker, like, who is this? And they were like, oh, you look like Charlie Brown. I was like, oh, okay. I, I do love too, when he cuts off the lawyer's arm, um, she's spraying blood and screaming everywhere and no one's moving and she falls to the ground and then there's just a beat of like silence. <laughs> and then everyone starts screaming and running out of the restaurant. Like they're in such shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean the the uh it's 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 so good. I mean for anyone who hasn't seen this just I I don't want to give too, you know, I don't want to stay too long on this and too much on this, but definitely it's a, it's a fight scene worth watching. And I think we do have to hit a couple important plot points within that fight scene, one being her fight with Gogo. Right. Um which Gogo by the way so I don't know where everyone who's in this movie was brought from, but I did look up a little bit and obviously Quentin got some people that from movies like Japanese movies that he was really a fan of. And Gogo was in Battle Royale. I knew it. Okay. I knew she looked familiar. Um, and so like that's it. He loves that movie and just fucking who, why could you not love that movie? If you love Quentin Tarantino movies, you would love Battle Royale, obviously. Um, but she is just such a badass character as far as just like, just her attitude scares you like she's so confident um 
Right. I love when Uma's like, you know, I just, I beg you to walk away. And she's like, that doesn't sound like begging to me. Like, I'll make you beg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I'm not a huge fan of how that fight scene ends. I think it could have been a little you know, done with more finesse, maybe a little cooler, more it, purposeful. It, it kind of makes it seem like Gogo was a stronger fighter than her. Like she won accidentally. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of like cheapens the victory, at least to me. So first, I love after Gogo is defeated the the look Uma gives Lucy Liu when she hears all the motorcycles like revving up and, and you know kind of stopping around the restaurant, and Lucy Liu Oren Ishi like smiles back at her like okay Uma you know that what's about to happen and she's like oh I really thought you know you really thought it was going to be that easy and she's like you know for a second I, I really did. And then it, there's about a thousand henchmen that run in, which is obviously it ends up being probably like 30 or 40. But it's just like straight 20 seconds of guys running into the restaurant. Yeah, you know, and as the audience, you, you're like, oh, was it that easy? And you didn't want it to be because you don't want it to be over. And uh, yeah, it's, it's far from over at that point too. My favorite fight scene too after that is her fighting... F- six, seven, eight guys with like the blue background and the, the, the black bars crossing. The, and um, it's, it's all in silhouette too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the lights get turned on and there's one guy left and it's just like a little kid and she starts spanking him with the sword. Yep. Just like, you know, you have to put the comedy in there. But the, the speech that uh, Uma gives, you know, those lucky enough to have your lives, take them with you. However, leave the limbs you lost. Those are mine. And Sophie, don't fucking move. Like, stay right there. Ah, uh, so good. And then we, I think, I mean, yeah, she takes out the the head bald guy of the crazy eighty eights. Um, but I, that's not as big of a plot point of of their, you know, Lucy Liu and Uma Thurman's final fight. Right. Which one cool thing is Lucy Liu says, "I hope you still have your energy. Otherwise, you might not last five minutes." And that fight scene was four minutes and 59 seconds. No. After that. Really? Yeah. yeah. From like the time she steps forward to fight until like she falls. So uh, I didn't hear that line specifically, but I did like the line where she's like, swords never get tired. And I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. Only their owners do. And it's like, of course I knew this, but like having it said in that way, I thought it was really cool. And then also back to the music again, the, uh, the name of the song when Lucy Liu is like finally, basically she scalped, um, it's called The Flower of Carnage. Yeah. Which is also just kind of appropriate. So uh, did you know Robert Rodriguez scored this film? No, I did not know that. And he was paid $1 <laughs> by Quentin Tarantino. And then Tarantino agreed to direct part of Sin City for $1 as like a, uh, as like a gift to each other basically. That's sweet. That's that's bromance right there. Um, did you think that Lucy Liu was fully decapitated at first? No, I mean, no, you could kind of tell it was just her hair. I was like, what is that going to look like when it uh, when it when it falls off? It's it's pretty <laughs> gruesome, I guess. I've seen so many behind the scenes shots of Lucy Liu wearing that headpiece with the with the green screen and the and the blood. Right. It's like almost iconic how she's like wearing it in a BTS shot and she's like laughing or something. Um, I think I think that scene, that fight, that lead up, everything about that is great. But I will say one thing about like the fight scene or at least how Quentin Tarantino ends his fight scenes. To me, when they're at the final fight or the big boss or something, it always ends very dramatically and very quickly. Do you do you see that? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that's it. Kind of is is playing a little bit with your with your expectations. I mean, overall, this entire fight scene, like I said, is like almost thirty minutes. So it's like you can't you can't be upset with what you got out of this. Um, but also, too, if you have like these two people that are so proficient, so deadly like one mistake, you know what I mean? Like they're both offensively like inclined. So someone's going to, you know, someone's going to hit someone with a sword. I mean, and, and originally Lucy Liu almost killed Uma with that like strike to the back. So it doesn't, 
it doesn't ring untrue to me that these fights would go quickly when it's one-on-one no me me neither i just find it kind of funny how you spend what you say 20 30 minutes on the lackeys and the goons and then less than five minutes on the main boss i just it's purposeful and it's probably more realistic but i just i just find the ratio of timing to be kind of like oh okay we're we're done here right and then and then right after that i i kind of love when she grabs sophie from the trunk and like tosses her down um one thing you'll notice too so like uma basically tells her like you're gonna talk to me you're gonna tell me where these people are and obviously she gave up vivica a fox really quickly because uh uma knew where to find her um she's like if you don't i'm gonna cut off things that are important to you and then when you notice she's rolled down the hill, she is only still missing the arm. So she talked immediately. <laughs> she was like, I'm not losing another damn thing. So when she does toss her down the hill, the silhouette of being thrown down the hill, yeah, she's only missing an arm. But then when Bill has Sophie and they're talking through the phone and you only see like Bill's hand on Sophie's head and Sophie's alive, it does allude to the fact that she cut off way more than just an arm. I mean, just the dialogue and the, the pretense of it is like all she is is a head and, and a stump, um, a stump now. And I, you, the fact that you never see the rest of her body, I think is like a way of being like, who knows how, how what she cut off. Um, and I guess that's a, a long-winded way of saying, I think, being thrown down the hill and seeing that she only has lost one arm might've been a movie mistake. Maybe. I, I don't know. I like to think of it as Sophie. Uh, Sophie wasn't as hard as she, you know, Sophie's a little more refined and she's not, not wanting things to get cut off. Um, I also thought Bill was just going to start choking Sophie. Like or I thought he was going to murder her for her betrayal, which is kind of an interesting, interesting point that he was so, understanding of her kind of giving in because Uma wanted one all this information but also wanted to leave Sophie alive so that Bill would know you know I'm not done I'm coming for everybody yeah because you 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 know that at this point you realize that a lot of or basically all the members of the Viper assassination squad have defected and it kind of like makes at least it makes me wonder why did they just specifically go after Uma? It, he also does, you know, as it fades to black, say, is she aware her daughter is still alive? And if you thought this story was over now, it's just begun.